The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World and my guest, photographer and conservationist Nick Brandt. Way before our present time, an astounding mix of species and diversity roamed our world, everywhere, formerly in places where each and every one of us now sit. Meanwhile, we also know that in many of these places around the world, extraordinary animals and landscapes do still exist, and animals do still roam. And it is through the eyes of people such as Nick and his images, we can visually experience the visceral impacts that reawaken our very human and profound sense of wonder. The destruction we are witnessing today did not happen in our deep past, but is happening now in our immediate present. Nick's images, his organization, Big Life Foundation, founded in September of 2010, his previous photographic testimonial to wildness, and his newest release, Inherit the Dust, and Associated Gallery Presentations, addresses the very heart of this real-life, real-world, immediate future of a diminished world that none of us want in our future to hold or to imagine. It is my great pleasure to welcome Nick Brandt, one of my own heroes of visionary photography and fellow conservationist facing a rapidly changing new world. Welcome, Nick. Thank you very much, and thank you for that lovely testimonial at the beginning of the program. Well, my pleasure. It, it truly is an honor and a pleasure to be speaking with you. As I had said as we were conversing before we began three years ago, I would not have imagined being able to have this conversation with you. So it truly is an honor and a pleasure for me. I'm very excited. So um, Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. So uh, why don't we start with just a little bit about you. And then um, how you got into saving the world, saving Africa and uh, your, your photography. Oh, God, not to put too much of a kind of... Uh, no pressure. <laughs> ...onus on me. I think saving the world is, is a little, um, you know, over the top. Um, I, I, you know, each of us in our own way, hopefully, will try and do something to make the world a little bit of a better place. Each of us tries to be a kind of... Inc- incremental cog in the wheel and utilizes uh, what talent we might have in that regard. Um, so I'm just trying to do what little I can through my particular skills. So when did you start, when did you realize, when did you begin photographing and you have a very um, specific style that is astonishing to look at. It's more like looking at Renaissance paintings than your average photograph. It, it really is astonishing. And uh, listeners, you need to go visit uh, inheritthedust.nickbrandt.com to see the newest images. And you really need to look at it on a huge screen, not your iPhone, not your iWatch, or any of these little tablets. You need to see this on a big screen. So how'd you get started? And then segue into specifically African wildlife. Um, so the initial work... Um, when I first began, I always felt that there was, I wanted to photograph animals as sentient creatures, not so different from us. I always viewed the photography of animals as I would take a 
portrait of a human being, except I just happened to be taking a portrait of an animal. And initially, I was sort of struck by, with wonderment, at this paradisical world that I first encountered in East Africa. Um, and so the early photographs are these kind of portraits of these extraordinary creatures. And then as time went by, um, I realized with a kind of grim foreboding that that world was disappearing before my eyes. The work got darker and darker and culminated in this latest series of work, Inherit the Dust, in and which... It, I'm sorry, sorry, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> uh, in which I took uh, portraits of unreleased photographs that were portraits of animals I photographed over the years and blew them up to life-size panels and placed those panels in environments in East Africa where those animals used to roam but no longer do due to man's impact upon the environment. And it, there is a huge difference. As I said, I have your previous book. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't recall the title, even though it's sitting 10 feet away from me. Across and the Ravaged Land. Thank uh, you. So there, so there were three. There was a trilogy of books that went from paradise to stark, stark blasted earth. On this earth, a shadow falls across the ravaged land. And they're stunning images, and there are some landscape images in there that just blow my mind. Not only the um, portraits of the animals that really connect with your heart, but when you go, our listeners, when you go to inherit the dust and see the juxtaposition of Nick's latest body of work, it really is a culmination, as Nick just said, of a very changing landscape and a change in perspective. So that leads us to um, your founding of Big Life. Tell us how that came about. So in 2010, I went back to Kenya after being away for a year and a half and discovered to my horror that in the intervening years, quite a few elephants that I had photographed and gotten to know quite well had been killed by poachers. And there seemed to be an elephant being killed almost every week that I knew or was aware of. And that's, there was, go on. Go that's ahead. terrifying. There's one in particular that stands out in our mind, a, a rather magnificent elephant that you had photographed. Um, and then what, within a week he was killed? Well, there's Igor who was the, is the, was on the cover of A Shadow Falls and on this earth, A Shadow Falls. Uh, in a photograph called Elephant Drinking. Um, he was a beautiful uh, bull that I photographed in 2007, and by the time I went back in 2010, he'd been killed by poachers. Um, there was also, your, I think you may be mentioning, a, a matriarch called Kumquat, who with her granddaughters was killed uh, a few days after I took, a, or I think 24 hours actually, after I took, um, some photographs of her, but so the getting back to 2010, um, there there was you know elephants were being killed, and there was really there was there were very few people on the ground who were doing anything about it. The government bodies were underfunded, understaffed. And the few NGOs in the area were also underfunded and very, very scarce in their presence. And what was happening was that poachers were coming across the border from Tanzania to kill elephants in Kenya and escape back over the border with the tusks in hand with complete impunity. And so I felt that surely there was a way of getting a much more meaningful presence on the ground and doing something about this. So I called up somebody I knew well, Richard Bonham, who was the, who's an amazing conservationist um, in an adjoining area, and we decided to start Big Life. And being able to access wealthy collectors of my photographs, I was able to raise some money, and with that we started hiring rangers, equipping them, building outposts, buying anti-poaching vehicles and now five and a half years later we have 300 plus rangers in 40 outposts 15 uh, vehicles three aerial uh, 
patrolling planes uh, and night vision tracker dogs, the works. And with that, we've been able to dramatically reduce to the point of elimination the existence of poaching in that now what is now a two million acre ecosystem that Big Life uh, helps protect. I don't think we've stated exactly where Big Life operates. It's in Kenya. And so it's in Kenya and Tanzania, okay. uh, the Amboseli Savo Kilimanjaro ecosystem. So Amboseli National Park uh, going over to the border into northern Tanzania. So we have a lot of friends in common because I've spent almost 30 years in that er- those areas and more over my time. So uh, like you, I've seen the devastation and the destruction and the loss. You know, you go out and you drive around all day looking... Uh, looking at wildlife, you know, being a part of this landscape and capturing images, making amazing photographs, and they're not there like they used to be. Like you, I've known animals that, uh, you know, I knew for years that are no longer there. And same for people. So um, you not only have turned your passion into action, which is one of my mottos and for my organization, Wild Eyes, but you've done it in a very big way um, to promote big life, not just megafauna, but life, uh, biodiversity, that it's in all its magnificence. So um, this leads us to, in terms of, you, you had mentioned not much NGO presence, very little governmental presence, which has changed a lot since 2010. So how do you involve the communities? You said you hire rangers, but today, real conservation, which is what this program is about, involves people in, in situ uh, becoming a part of the conservation future. So how does Big Life go about doing that? It's at the fundamental core of the ethos of Big Life. In today's world, there in, 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 in today's East African world, there really is no way forward, no future for the conservation of animals in the wild without the support of the local communities. Just to kind of give you a sort of perspective on this, Amboseli National Park is just 100,000 acres big. The animals spend probably 80% of their time outside of that small area. As soon as they exit the park, they are in community land where they're instantly vulnerable to being killed for profit or anything else. And the only way that that you, the only way that you can keep them alive is with the support of the local community. Um, The idea being If conservation supports the community, then the community will support conservation. You can take out 300 rangers and fit them inside one gymnasium. So how the hell do 300 guys that fit inside one gymnasium protect an ecosystem 2 million acres in size? And the answer is with the support of the local community. Each one of those rangers is locally employed. And each one of those rangers has family. Whether it's mother, daughter, brother, father, sister, whatever those are another set of eyes on the ground. So if a poacher comes into that area with an intent to kill animals, one of our rangers usually gets to hear about it. And so it's reached a point now where, on the kind of poacher grapevine, for want of a better phrase, um, poachers know not to enter the area where big life rangers are because there's an extremely strong likelihood they're going to get caught. And it reaches the point, eventually, where... More and more of local, the local communities understand um, that this is, pragmatically speaking, the way their future. Um, that in a semi-arid desert, the only, all they really have is livestock herding, and which is increasingly susceptible to drought, especially with the increasing incidence of climate change. Whereas we are now the biggest employer in the area and Africa has an ability to be a nature superpower. Um, it's, it's in terms of, it has the ability to be a superpower in terms of nature tourism. As more and more ecosystems and, and animal populations are wiped out elsewhere in Africa, those, those ecosystems that do remain will become more and more precious and highly valued and will bring in even more tourism. So for those people, this really is, they are sitting on a gold mine. They're sitting on an elephant mine. 
Um, if I can, there's just one statistic I'd like to mention. Absolutely. Um, when an elephant is killed, on average, that will be $20,000 for the poacher and the trader. And that money is not seen by the local community. Whereas it's been estimated that an elephant, during the course of its lifetime, will bring in $1.6 million to the economy of the country and the local community. And viewed through that perspective, um, I think hopefully people begin to see saving the environment benefits not just the animals, but also the people. Well, thank you for that wonderful answer, and I hope it really helps our, under, our listeners understand how interwoven and interconnected conservation community, NGOs, and turning passion into action, and through the visual media of Nick's photographs, makes a difference. So we're out of time for this first section, but stick with us. We have a lot more to cover, and be sure to check out Big Life Foundation on the web at biglife.org, and find Big Life on Facebook and be sure once again to check out Inherit the Dust on uh, the web and look at it through a large screen. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up, our forests don't grow, our communities go hungry, our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect, it's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and my guest, Nick Brandt, a fabulous photographer, conservationist, co-founder of Big Life Foundation. And uh, if you're just tuning in now, uh, please go back and listen to the first part of this, because uh, during the first section, Nick, you, you mentioned climate change, and it is certainly an issue that the world must be looking at. We had the Paris Climate Talks that is giving us until 2050 to make some changes, but a lot of what your work is about is that we don't, maybe we humans have this time, but wildlife and ecosystems and the um, massive destruction and what's happening and the loss of diversity in places like East Africa doesn't have that time. Why don't you tell us a little bit of how all this comes together and what Big Life is doing and your community work is doing to address climate change? Well, you say that... Um animals have less less time than humans but i think humans in poor areas don't we can in the western world just go into the supermarket and buy food even if it's uh the climate is fundamentally changing outside all the work that we are doing not to sound too melodramatic but 
all the work that we are doing in protecting these ecosystems could ultimately be for naught if we don't do something about climate change. That the natural resources will become so compromised that there won't be the ability, people won't have the space to leave room. It'll just be, uh, it'll just be grabbing what diminished resources there are to stay alive. Uh, so the idea that we are still in this country, in America, still debating what for the rest of the world, the entire rest of the world is a foregone scientific conclusion and understanding, just beggars description. And I think in years to come, future generations will look back in horror at what politicians and uh, various corporations did by way of suppression of information to suppress legislation that allowed climate change to begin to be dealt with. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm kind of, you can possibly hear the frustration in my voice, but the level to which the anti-science crowd in America, uh, the level they go to, to suppress information, to disseminate misinformation, purely for personal profit, beggars description. And ultimately, I actually think these people will be and should be viewed, it's a strong word, as terrorists, because they are ultimately going to be responsible for terror for millions of people across the planet for generations to come as a result of climate change. There shouldn't be an argument about it at this point. What, if, if, if any of these Republican politicians were told by 97 out of 100 doctors, you've got cancer, would they just choose to ignore it? And why is it that they choose to ignore groups like the Pentagon, a bastion of republicanism apparently, saying this is actually happening? You, you've made an excellent point, and I agree with you 1,000%. The climate deniers deserve the Unicorn Award. Um, it's <laughs> a fantasy that they're living in. And um, uh, other guests um, from Kenya and elsewhere in the world have said, said the same thing. One put it very well, Will Knocker. In uh, Kenya, he said, us Americans, uh, he said, you Americans, you have this whole continent to yourselves that you tend to forget there is a world out there. Except it is also happening to America. There's one fantastic quote from uh, an environmentalist who's no longer alive called Judy Bonds. And she says, she said, there are no jobs on a dead planet. Ah. So the idea that we're trying to protect a few coal mining jobs in Kentucky so Mitch McConnell can keep his position as head of the Senate in, in, in America versus the carnage, the environmental carnage that will be wrought upon hundreds of millions of people and, of course, animals all around the world for the sake of a few diminishing number of coal mining jobs when there are far more people now employed in green energy than there are in coal mining in America. Well, it's, it's, it's sort of a given with people of, of, of intelligence like you and I and many others, uh, the non-deniers, that green energy alternatives providing an alternative to uh, a fossil fuel world and the effects that our lifestyle has on the third world, or I, I even hate that phrase, emerged worlds that are now taking place on the world stage, such as Africa, we're denying them the ability to find alternatives because we kind of promote the West as the best and shiny, brightest model that progress equals possession and power versus mm. progress equals a, a real 
fundamental change in our lifestyles and mode of systems. So you're right, here in the West, not just the America, which is astonishingly um, blind to what's going on. So we're at a conundrum. It is very frustrating. So um, this brings us to something that I would, I think you would like to talk about is the future of the natural world in Africa. So if this is what we're facing, and we're in a political climate right now that is ridiculous even in terms of our own history that this is what it's come to that the runners that we have now has become such a joke how does this impact the work and the community work and the people that you know and live with and work with every day in these communities in this vast acreage these two million acres of uh, wildlife habitat in africa how does how do you pull this together and how do they pull it together well, you, you, you have to keep on fighting and hoping for the best. I mean, uh, it's a case of being, for me, when I started Big Life, it was a case of being angry and active rather than being angry and passive. And you don't just give up because there's this huge war being waged. You still fight your battles. And kind of what I think we're doing is sort of triage. We're trying to keep this ecosystem going. We're trying to keep these animals alive whilst we hope that the tortuous machinations of government and others work their sort of ponderous way to gradually improve things in the bigger picture. But it's meanwhile, we're doing this triage on the ground. Uh, and, And you can't allow the kind of nihilists to um, kind of have the better of you. Well said. Well said. Thank you. That was beautifully said. So what are some of the um, actual projects that Big Life implements? You said you've employed rangers, anti-poaching, and as a friend of mine, Damien Mander, who has International Anti-Poaching Foundation, his work, boots on the ground, uh, militarized, uh, is needed. You know, an an uptick in the way we address anti-poaching is a much-needed change. But as he puts it, he's just there to stop the hemorrhaging until, as you say, governments get their heads out of the darkness and realize that the petty things that we're dealing with are really truly petty that we have to look at in terms of millennium goals the environment first because if we don't save the environment there is no future as you just said right well and what we're doing is about much more than poaching like i said i mean we've kind of as a result of this incredible community support we've kind of gotten poaching under control uh in a surprisingly, really surprisingly short space of time. The much bigger, more overwhelming issue, far more complex, is, is population pressure. There are simply too many of us, and the development that is spreading is far, far more. The, 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 we are losing probably about three elephants a year to poachers out of a population of 1,700 to 2,000. That's a pretty decent number considering where we were at five years ago, six years ago. We're losing far more elephants and other animals to human-wildlife conflict because as man encroaches further and further upon wildlife habitat, we get, you come into this conflict. And it's reached the point now where the big, big, big thing for us is... I, I don't want to sound like Donald Trump. <laughs> I, was, I, I don't think like, anybody I was, can. No, no, I was actually heading towards a sentence and I thought, oh, there's actually no way of avoiding this. He's kind of ruined it. But the, our big goal this year is we need to build a fence, a 130-kilometer fence along the Kilimanjaro foothills that not just that doesn't only just stop elephants raiding farmers' crops, at which point farmers are very justified in attempting to retaliate because that's all their crops disappearing in, in one fell swoop. Their annual livelihood is disappearing. What would you do if you were poor and you were seeing your crops destroyed? You'd pick up a spear and hurl it at an elephant. We're very sympathetic to that. And we have patrols out every night trying to help farmers 
and to stop the elephants from raiding their crops. But it's also that fence is there to also prevent further encroachment of farmland upon the wildlife habitat. It's keeping the idea that Africa is this vast wilderness is outmoded. You know, we, we still have this vision of Africa, especially propagated by nature documentaries, I think, that it's this vast place full of animals. And that's really not the case. Uh, humans have an extraordinary ability to kind of uh, worm their way into every little nook and cranny of, of an ecosystem. Um, and so our real challenge is how in the 21st century to deal with an increasing number of people living side by side with animals. And that's where, as I was saying earlier, the only future of conservation in the wild in East Africa is the support of the community. And as long as they see the pragmatic economic benefit of having those animals in their midst, that will happen. And that's what we truly believe in as a holistic vision that we would love with sufficient money to spread across the continent. So that brings me to a natural point right here. How do people help big life? You can go to the organization and you just said you need to raise the funds for a fence. And I happen to know they're costly, but it's very doable. And that in some places, fences are, are needed because we've lost, as you said, um, the buffer zones that we used to have because there's so many more people. And this is the one thing I'd say globally no one wants to address. We're not talking about population control and above everything else in terms of environmental uh, preservation, protection, conservation. We have to address population control. And that's, that's a sticky wicket. Um, you know, in Africa, it, before it was about birth control, which seemed, okay, you want us to minimize our numbers while the rest of you in the world increase your numbers. So it really isn't about that. It's about reproductive health and a one health system that, as you just said, looks at everything holistically as an interconnected web. So you, you'd said we have this romanticized version of Africa, which you know, the West certainly does, and it is certainly promoted and maintained by nature documentaries. It never shows the crosshairs of where people and wildlife meet. It's always center stage, wildlife doing its thing like nothing else exists. So, um, and, we, and that also brings in the matter of technology. We have super technology now that can get us where we've never been before, and there are many nature stations that... Uh, use that as their their uh, tagline, getting closer. So there's seems to be less and less places that are untouched by us, and we need to find ways to leave them alone. So um, in terms of us Westerners, so how does that lead into ecotourism without putting pressure of bringing more people into an area to, that ends up putting more pressure and more development, let's say the Masai Mara and its recent explosion of development and the losses that are happening there. How, how do we address that? How does Big Life, you and Richard, two incredible minds and visionaries, how, do you, how are you putting this together? We don't have the same issue of too many tourists undermining the wildlife population that the Masai Mara does. I've seen that explosion of lodges and vehicles absolutely everywhere to the point that a cheetah's trying to go on a hunt get constantly disrupted by tourists being in the way. Um, it, it's, I've seen that so many times in the Mara. We don't have that issue in our area. So there is plenty of room for ecotourism to grow in, in our area. Um, so yeah, it's not an issue. It's not an issue there. So tell us a little bit more about your area. Are there and how tourists, our listeners, can not only engage by donating and learn more by going to the website biglife.org and your website nickbrandt.com or .org. Um, which one is it? Nickbrandt.com. Okay, please, listeners, visit these websites. Read. Um, look at it. it. It's a way you can use your technology to 
turn your passion into activism and definitely visit inheritthedust.nickbrandt.com because these images are just heart-wrenching. Um, I just turned my face to it right now and got the chills of the elephant in the uh, dump ground, uh, landfill pit. Um, the images are stunning. So tell us a little bit more about your expectations or um, maybe not expectations, but uh, what you hope, I guess it is expectations, what you hope to accomplish with Inherit the Dust and its exhibits everywhere. There's always a it's a big sigh, yes. <laughs> big sigh for getting that, that answer because I really, truly don't know how much impact my photographs can have. But as I said at the beginning of the program, that's where my skill notionally lies. And so that's how I'm going to express my feelings. It's why I became a photographer. I didn't become a photographer because of I love the medium. I became a photographer because of my love of animals and the natural world, and photography was merely the best medium through which to express my feelings about animals and the natural world. So do I want these photographs to change the world? Yeah, sure. Do I think that they're going to? No. Would I like government bodies and industrialists to look at these photographs and go, gee, you know what? We are kind of doing something kind of crap here. Yeah. Um, would I like them to understand that there is a path forward where both the people and the natural world benefit, which is the path of in the environment being the uh, being of economic benefit? Um, but you know, this isn't just African governments who don't understand this. Once again, we come back to America. America can hardly preach to. African governments, which are much poorer, when there's so much sort of uh, greed and influence from rich energy companies and oil companies here in America. So, look, as I say, I, I hope the photographs will be this incremental cog in the wheel of change. I don't know. I can't possibly know. Well, you know, you said something, will your photographs change the world? And I think... Well, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> you said you didn't think your oh, didn't photographs right. would change yeah, yeah. the world. I, I apologize. Yeah. But the world is made up of individuals. And your photographs do have the power to influence the vision of an individual. They did for me. And I, I'm telling my listeners right now, all you have to do is see... What a small series of Nick's images, and you need to look at them all, and it, each image engages you to look at more. So I do believe your images can change people, and by changing people one at a time across a scale of exponential increases, we can make a difference. Well, and yes, um, and also the the work has enabled me to begin this foundation which has unequivocally um, benefited a vast ecosystem that is now much the better for it. So even if the photographs directly have been a minimal you know, impact, at least what has come from that, the exposure that has come from that has enabled us to raise funds to keep this extraordinary, unique two million acre ecosystem going in southern Kenya and northern Tanzania. The other thing I just want to say, though, is it doesn't really matter to me what each of us chooses as something to to try and protect or help. Each of us, if each of us in his own, this is such a corny thing to say, but hopefully each of us in his in his or her own way can help make the planet a better place. And whether it's something small, just saving cat from a homeless shelter or you know, helping out, the, the, whatever the reason is, whatever the, the, your choice is, even if it's just recycling, each of us trying to minimize our impact on the planet and make the planet a better place, it's all good. It doesn't have to be this kind of monumental thing because otherwise it can be overwhelming for some people. For many people, they don't know well, what can I do? Well, each of us can do something small. You're absolutely correct. And just, just like, for example, 
don't eat meat from factory farms. Spare, just, and people will say, oh, but the, that meat is cheaper. But every time you buy meat from a fa factory farm, you're part of a, a machine, a chain, I'm sorry to say this, where animals have gone through torment, torture, and misery for cheap meat. It's similar to what, what Russell Brand has talked about. You know, we have to make these decisions. And the vibration, you know, I'm, I'm not bringing religious into this. I'm bringing spirituality. And in each of us, there is, in most of us, compassionate coexistence, caring, that humanity side that makes us the best of what we can be instead of the worst of what we can be. It brings out, you know, this vibe, this factory farming brings out this vibe of death and violence. Do we want to live in a world that um, contributes to this and promotes it and keeps it going? Or do we make a simple change, eat less meat, grow our own chickens, grow our own food, and um, make that difference? You're very right. It, it does make a difference whether you bring your own bag and not use plastic to the store. It's one simple thing we can do, and we talk about this a lot on this program. The little things that each person can do that when you add them up on a global 7 billion people population scale does make a difference. And so by the way, and sorry to interrupt, but you mentioned the plastic bags. Let me just say, you know, that you even get resistance in very wealthy states in America by the plastic bag lobby that we, we, we are taking, people are losing their jobs because there are no longer plastic bags available. But if a poor country like Rwanda can institute a complete plastic bag ban, and by the way, I've been there and it is astonishing and glorious to travel across the country and the place is immaculate. A poor country with not a single plastic bag blowing in the wind. Whereas you look at those photographs um, that I took on the dump site in Kenya and winds come through and create these tornadoes of plastic bags. It's quite extraordinary. It's something I couldn't capture in a photograph, but you just get these thousands of plastic bags whirling up into the sky and being flown far and wide and every time you take take a plastic bag you buy use a plastic bag where does that end it ends up in a landfill somewhere or ends up in the ocean and a, 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 tur a turtle um starving to death because it's got caught in its throat or whatever happens the point is each of us and as i said can do something small or large to make a difference you're absolutely right, and I hope our listeners are taking this to heart because this is something each of us can do. It doesn't require major sacrifice. It requires engaging and reconnecting with each other and with this earth, not living a virtual experience. So um, once again, I would like to remind our listeners to visit inheritthedust.nickbrandt.com and biglife.org and visit uh, and see what... Big Life is, has accomplished. It's, it's a tremendous amount that it's accomplished. And donate. Um, even if you gave up $1 or $0.05 for every minute of this conversation that you're listening to, our listeners, each of our 150,000 listeners gave $0.05. Cents. Imagine what you could do. So there are huge opportunities of a small scale to make a big difference. So, um, Nick, you have this new exhibit, Inherit the Dust, and it's going to be uh, showing in galleries uh, around the world. Can you tell us a little bit about that, and will, and will you be at any of them? Yeah, I'm at the openings of most. Currently, it's it, the exhibitions in New York and Los Angeles. The really special exhibition, I have no idea how many people listen to you who are in Sweden, but the most impressive exhibition where these prints are up to 12 feet long um, is in, at a museum in Sweden in May, June, July. Fotografiska uh, in Stockholm. Uh, it's a wonderful photographic museum. Uh, and every one of the photographs there will will, uh, will be there in larger size. And just one kind of wonderful thing I had, I had it for for Big Life is that we had I had an exhibition there last year, and we left out uh, we put up a sign about Big Life on the wall and put out a, a donation box for people just to throw their coins in. in. Um, and at the end of the three month exhibition, there was over fifty thousand dollars in that box of just people just chucking in 
random coins and notes. That was really incredibly touching. Um, well, just it just goes to show that yeah. your images do have an impact and that, you know, taking the spare change from your pocket when you're moved, immediately moved, at that moment makes a big difference. That's mm. fabulous. That just gave me chills. Mm. Will you have the donation boxes at oh, all, yeah, all your exhibits? Um, no. <laughs> I wish we did, but we'll have them at the more commercial ones. Uh, like the museum in Sweet Stockholm, and there's a festival, Look Three Festival in Charlottesville, where we'll have that. Um, but those photographs are kind of what's the word I'm looking for? I, I had no idea when I began the series just how prescient, for want of a better word, it would be in terms of the invasion of man upon wildlife habitat. I think we still, even I was still thinking until a couple of years ago, it was mainly about poaching. But like I said earlier, it's, it's about so much more than that now. And we kind of have to move away from that to the much bigger picture of just there's too many of us and how we deal with that on this very, very finite planet. Well, you said it very well in an essay that you sent me, and I'm going to quote from that essay. Mainly, it's about all of us, a terrifying number of us, and the impact of the very finite amount of space and resources for so many humans, and I'm just going to add, and so much wildlife, you know, non-humans. So it's not just about us. It is about all life on Earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and <laughs> <laughs> it's a big subject. It is, it it's, is mind-boggling, and I think our listeners yeah. are totally understanding that even those of us like you and I and all the other guests that have been on this show, that it is huge and that we do need to break it down into bites that are manageable and not so overwhelming. And when we cover it in a conversation like we are today, it brings to light in, in your hesitancy and um, the ability to say, there's so much going on in your mind, I can tell, to get it out there in an articulate phrase, which you've done, but even better, you've done it in your photographs. A photograph is worth a thousand words. Your, yours, each photograph of yours is a novel, if you want to look at it that way. So um, we've got just a, a couple minutes left here. Um, coming up at the end of this month is a very big event, uh, April 30th in Kenya, the Kenya Ivory Burn. Will Big Life be there? Yeah, Richard, my partner, will be there, and um, our our coordinator, our, our coordinator for all the rangers, Craig. Um, I, I'm really delighted that this is occurring. There's huge controversy over to burn or not burn, and uh, maybe unsurprisingly, I'm very firmly in the camp of burning. I think we learned extremely painfully this whole poaching crisis began in 2008 when CITES made the terrible decision to allow a one-time sell-off of ivory. And under that mantle, for want of a better word, um, huge amounts of illegal ivory were, have been sold off, have been sold under the auspices of being legal. And you go and now create a whole new set of ivory to be sold off uh, that is confiscated, that was due to be burned, and now you've got a whole other massive supply that, again, creates an opportunity for large amounts of illegal ivory to be, um, to be sold. The other thing is, people say, well, that ivory, the money from that ivory could be used to fund conservation projects. It doesn't work that way. It, that, uh, in, that, suggest, that could only work with zero corruption. Uh, in Botswana, there were $7 million raised from the um, sale of ivory, and only $300,000 of that ended back with the local communities to help in conservation. Um, and that's kind of the norm. I haven't cherry-picked that. Well, you're absolutely correct, because um, 
the whole point, I was at the Denver Ivory Crush. A lot of countries have oh, crushed ivory cool. now, and the burns are coming up. The only way to stop an ivory trade is to create, is to give ivory no value. That the only thing about an elephant and ivory is the two of them together alive. And that has value, inherent value, ecosystem value, monetary value, ecosystem value, you name it. it that's the value in ivory, living and being carried around by these magnificent creatures. So, um, unfortunately, we're out of time today. Um, there's so many things that we could continue to discuss. And uh, you brought up so many points that it just lit up uh, questions in my head. So, maybe we can... Uh, talk again. I look forward to uh, perhaps getting in touch with Richard. Uh, Wild Eyes will be there at the burn and maybe we can get an interview and we're trying to have a show immediately after the burn and uh, web streaming uh, video to show people the importance and what's going on there and gather more and more momentum. So meanwhile people order Nick's books. There's a trilogy if you're in any of the cities, we will post uh, where the exhibits are. I wish I could be at the one in Stockholm. To see that in person would blow me away. So um, in the meantime, Nick, thank you so much for your well, time. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the chance to have a good old rant about <laughs> so much and hopefully not sound too whingy and complaining about the whole state of the planet, but there you go. Well, absolutely. If you listen to any other episodes on this planet and my own particular solo rants, you'll see that we are in exactly the same camp. So I'm with you on that one. And no, you're not whingy and whiny. Um, you're telling it like it is. And this is what people know, need to know. So that's it for today. This is Ellie Weiss and my special guest Nick Brandt as I said one of my heroes and go out there and take part in our wild world thank you again for joining us this week be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of our wild world with your host Ellie Weiss on the Voice America Variety Channel think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 